taking a Bible, either your own or the one in the pew there, the church Bible, I'd have you turn to our ongoing study in the first letter of Peter in the New Testament. We are at now 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we, with the Lord's help, will look at verses 21 through 25. I'm going to actually read the text as you follow along in just a few moments. We're going to read it slowly. We're going to take in the words that God has for us today. But let me say this, that the immediate preceding context is important to today's study as well. And I refer to the last phrase of verse 20. If you'll look at that first, uh, the last phrase of verse 20, where the apostle says to us, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. If we were to ask the question, how might I be pleasing to the Lord? How might he's, his blessing rest upon me? Well, anytime you suffer and do so unjustly for doing what is right and you patiently endure it, why that finds favor with God. Now, our study today is the answer of God's word when you've done nothing wrong or especially when you have actually done the will of God, done what is right. But instead of pats on the back, you actually suffer for the right. How are you and I to patiently endure the injustices of life in a fallen world? That is the question before us. And here is the answer beginning at verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering... He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him, that is, his father, who judges righteously. And he, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There's considerable and wonderful truth for us to reflect upon here. Let's turn to the Lord and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we are privileged to not only learn about you, but to actually learn from you. You have given your son who came with the words of eternal life, but he also lived a life in this hostile world of sin and so speaks to us by his very example. 
we with eyes of faith would see Jesus and learn of him and from him by the working of your Holy Spirit. Through this God-breathed revelation of yourself in the pages of our Bibles, we ask in Jesus' victorious name and by his overcoming power, we would see Jesus. Amen. Beloved, there's one phrase in today's scripture. It's there at verse 21. It captured my attention and I got a little off course, uh, went down a side road in my studies and preparations this week. I actually spent most of a wonderful afternoon thinking about these three words, this phrase in verse 21. The three words are in his steps. You see how it says you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In his steps. Some of you may be thinking about the enduring classic novel written by Charles, Reverend Charles M. Sheldon more than a hundred years ago now. But when the book was celebrated on its hundredth anniversary, just as far back as 1996, literary experts ranked that novel as the tenth most read book in the world. In His Steps by Reverend Charles Sheldon. In simple yet emotionally charged style, it told the story of a rather self-righteous or, or self-satisfied congregation in a small Midwestern church who are challenged by a homeless man during a Sunday service to live up to their declaration of faith. Suddenly, the poor man in the story dies in their midst. And so moved are the minister and the parishioners that they take a pledge together. They, they pledge to live their lives for one full year, asking themselves this question every day, perhaps many times a day. What would Jesus do? Their example of how they suffered, how they faced ridicule, but emerged eventually victorious in fact, an influence in changing the whole culture of that town. The book itself inspired other churches throughout the country to do the same. And you may realize that when the novel was revived again in the 1990s, people everywhere started showing up with bracelets bearing the four letters. WWJD. I was going to ask for a show of hands to see who might have one of those in their dresser drawer at home. In some places, the WWJD, what would Jesus do, phenomenon continues. I actually came across a website on my computer at WWDJ.org. But to my surprise, I found that it was actually an online Christian dating service called Who Would Jesus Date? 
I continued my search and another Christian businessman in a town in car business borrowed the letters WWJD to send the message, what would Jesus drive? A Ford, of course, right? But back to Reverend Sheldon for a moment more here. And you'll see there's a reason for my laying this foundation for what the Apostle Peter has to say this morning. To his credit, Reverend Sheldon, uh, to his credit, is the fact that he did actually dedicate the rest of his life and ministry to inspiring others and himself doing all kinds of good works. In fact, true to the book itself, Sheldon became a passionate advocate of the late 19th century school of thought. A little history lesson here this morning. A school of thought in those days known as Christian socialism. I sadly report that his thinking, that school of thought which he powerfully reported, focused on only the practicalities of living a moral life. There was next to no emphasis on personal redemption through faith in Jesus Christ, nor did Reverend Sheldon even see a need for the biblical gospel of salvation, which comes, as we know, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His singular focus was Life in the here and now, as though heaven itself were a myth. And the irony has been that in his steps, the book has been widely encouraged as required reading among today's Bible-believing Christians. You should know that Sheldon is actually credited with inspiring an unfaithful theologian by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch, who is generally credited with creating the social gospel. With a socialist outlook, the path was then laid for what would become liberal Christianity. Those churches, and you see me putting quotes on the word churches, who actually care nothing about the salvation of sinners, since for them, they only look to Jesus as a moral example. They're not even concerned as to whether or not he actually really existed. But they will say, walk in his steps. And how do you do that? They would say, by reordering society, pursuing politics to conform to what is their own definition of the good of humanity's highest good or concerns. This form and even the religious-like language of socialism is very much alive in our day. And I can tell you in this hour, its Christless agenda marches on. So clearly, my discerning friends, you will expect me to say this. That kind of thing is not what Peter has in mind when he tells us to walk in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, isn't Jesus the highest and best example 
of moral perfection as a way of life? Without question, he is. But make no mistake and do not be deceived. There are none but him, Christ, who is righteous. No, not one. And the mission of Jesus Christ coming into this world was not to make society more fit for hell. His mission for coming into this world was not a moral crusade for the betterment of society or man's kingdom on earth. His mission, as you know, I trust you do know, was to seek and to save sinners from this world of sin and to make of them citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Peter twice now so far in our study reminds the believers of their alien status. That they in fact have now been born from above. Following in his steps will mean so much more than mere moral reform. Put it all together in one bag. Humanism, philanthropy, social causes. These, beloved, are all very poor substitutes for the true need of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The greater need, the eternal need, the ultimate great cause is that every man, woman, boy, and girl in all time will become a new creature. In Christ, a whole new creation made fit by grace for communion with their creator and to occupy the new heaven and the new earth to come. New birth, the gospel, not mere moral reform is the need of this hour. We preach Christ and Christ alone for that reason. New birth, not moral reform, is the deed of the hour. Always has been, always will be. Good deeds, yes, Peter has told us, commit ourselves to good deeds. Love our neighbor, even if he's a Muslim. Love your enemies. But understand, such good deeds are only a means to the greater cause the gospel itself and the salvation of precious souls. Now to our text. This matter of walking in his steps is a call. It needs to be made clear to believers. Only believers. That's what was wrong with Reverend Sheldon's powerful message. You can't walk in the steps of Jesus unless you have faith in Jesus, unless you know Jesus and you acknowledge him to be Lord and Savior. Peter's giving a message to believers, only believers in Jesus Christ. And the context addresses the matter of what it means to live for Christ in a fallen, hostile world that is under the judgment of God and will someday, Peter's the one who tells us every element of this physical world will melt with a fervent heat of God's judgment. Peter writes to a persecuted flock. Those who are doing what is right in the sight of God. Why? Because they are his children. But finding themselves under the condemnation at the same time of angry sinners. 
Jesus, the light of the world, and he calls his children the lights of the world, tells us also that this is where we are. This, Jesus says, is the judgment. It's the judgment of God. Hear it. Light has come into this world, but men love darkness rather than light. And they do not approach the light because their deeds will be exposed for the evil those deeds really are. That's the teaching of Jesus in the record of John chapter 3 and verse 19. Just a few verses away from John chapter 3 and verse 16. Yes, does God so love the world that he gives his only begotten son? But the response to that good news apart from his grace, is that that same world will not come to such light because their deeds are evil. Peter wants to equip the saints who already are experiencing this sense of alienation from an unregenerate society of sinners. It is as though he says, brothers and sisters, before you get all upset, about how the world treats your loyalty to Christ. Before you get all bent out of shape over the injustices you will most certainly encounter, you would do well to take a walk in Jesus' sandals. We live in a country where it's entirely possible that what we do here today or what this preacher, by the grace of God, seems bold enough to say, could someday, for all we know, be an unlawful act. It is tough living for Christ. When we get to chapter 4, I'm not going to have you turn there now, or we'll have two messages this morning. But when we get to chapter 4 in this same epistle, listen in summary form what Peter will say. He says to us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If he says you are reviled for the name of Christ. Now, are you ready for this? He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God most apparently rests upon you. I read that, I can hardly wait for the next insult. Although I don't think we'll have to go out and look for trouble. It's coming our way. But beloved, Peter's saying, let the next unkind word that they say about you because you belong to the Lord. Well, he would say, wear it as your badge of honor. In fact, just take it on the chin for Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Because Jesus himself is ready to kiss away the pain. His servants never go without final justice. 
But always remember what he also said. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. That's why we had better pray for our enemies, even as they may strike at us. We would be most like Jesus, would we not? Who, when he was nailed to the cross, would cry, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they are doing. If they did, they would repent. So it is in this sense that we have in Christ the highest example. Again, not for the purposes of mere moral reform, but we watch the steps Jesus took on Calvary's road and we follow in those steps. We walk in His steps. What, quite specifically, were those steps? I think you need to know this. The text reveals it first. Notice, they were the steps of a truly righteous man. I said a moment ago, the only intrinsically, thoroughly, sinless, holy man. Peter, in verse 22, quotes the messianic vision of Christ from Isaiah chapter 53. Did you see that in your Bible? Who, meaning Christ, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, that's not something you and I could ever say about ourselves or about any other man or woman, boy or girl. The reason that the sufferings of Christ were of such magnitude was because he was the only man on earth who could claim and be true absolute innocence. You see, it could never be said that the sufferings of Jesus were somehow deserved. And I'll be honest with you in this regard. When something bad happens to me, whenever it does, even if I've done something right and with what I think is a good motive, I usually figure that when something happens of a negative nature that way, somehow, at some deeper level of my troubled conscience, I'll say to myself, I probably deserved to suffer. Or that at least I could and you could not suffer in this world in proportion to the sufferings that our sins deserve. And yet, we are spared that. But Peter is telling me that if, it, if Jesus endured suffering without complaint and he was absolutely, intrinsically innocent... Surely then I can suffer a trial as one who has been spared what I actually would deserve. Not, by the way, so much at the hand of sinners. I have been spared the suffering that might have been mine at the hands of an angry but just God. Jesus took care of that wrath. He became the propitiation for our sins. That means he absorbed the very judgment of a holy God, his father, against our sins. He did that for us. So what then? If I suffer even a little. 
For what is doing right? Simply doing the revealed will of God. In case you're not getting it, you know what I'm saying at this point? Anything we suffer in the cause of Christ, even for doing what is right, frankly, it's no big deal. That's why Peter said earlier, make sure your suffering is for something you didn't do, but for something you did right. But never, ever try to compare the injustices that you have received in life with the great injustice of a world of sinners. When with their angry hands, they nailed your Savior to the cross. So that if and when unjust suffering, and my, it comes in such mild forms in our existence here, not true in every place where believers are, In the world today, but if and when unjust suffering enters my life, what is Peter saying? I look again at the footsteps of Jesus in the soil of Calvary and I walk in his steps. I look at the footsteps of Jesus in the blood stained soil of Calvary. And what do I see? Well, we get a glimpse and we read it again at verse 23. Look at this. While being reviled. Oh, that's a strong word, and that's why I just tried to vocally emphasize it. This is an ugly word. I, I struggle to, to, to define in a mixed audience how ugly a thing it is to be reviled. And yet it says, while being reviled, and, and the tense of the Greek here is, right while it was happening, he did not revile in return. I think this is a text that's asking me a personal question, and why should I be the only one here today under conviction? So I'll ask all of you the same question that addresses me. How short is your fuse? How short is your fuse when you feel you've been mistreated unjustly? Accused. Someone attacks your integrity. And isn't it our instinct almost instantly to counterattack? We won't ever get very good at this, not reviling in return as Jesus did, unless our gaze is fixed on Jesus. Look what he endured while it was happening is the tense of the text. While it was happening, the mocking crown of thorns, the blasphemies, the cursing, the spitting, the slapped cheek, the ripped beard. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Yes, he could have called 10,000 angels. Or just with the blast of his nostrils, blown them all away. But the text says he didn't even issue a threat. Do you know I looked back toward Good Friday this week. Good Friday as the Bible records it. Not 
one of those seven last sayings of Christ contain the slightest hint of a reviling threat to the evildoers? How? How do you do that? Well, the answer to that question is to fairly ask, how did Christ do that? Was it just because He was God in the flesh and He could do no wrong, including this? How? How do you do it? We're told to walk in His steps in this regard. Uh, That would mean that somehow we ought also to not revile in return, even while we are being reviled. So is there an answer? And there is. It meets us in the very real humanity of Christ. What does it say is the last part of verse 23. I don't know if you're someone who marks your Bible, but this deserves an underline. He kept entrusting himself to him, that is God his Father, who judges righteously. Jesus kept entrusting himself to his Father who judges righteously. So that when reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not usher any threats. As a sheep before its shearers, he was dumb. He spoke not a word, but he did keep entrusting himself to his Father who Judges righteously. Beloved, the only way he held his peace is the only way we can be expected to do the same is to believe this, that any evil which touches us in this life will be called to account and will in fact be made right In what Peter called, if you remember back in verse 12, the day of visitation. That is a day of righteous judgment yet to come. That day when God God does not simply uh, declare the guilt or the innocence of people, but a day of actual punishment to those who never repented, never confessed to the Lord and Savior. There is not one injustice that any child of God has suffered in all of history that will not be addressed by God the Father himself in the day of judgment. If Jesus, in fact, was God in flesh, but had in those most excruciating moments in his humanity had to exercise the heart and mind to trust his Father and to know that judgment day was coming. Oh, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what's coming. But this is written to us believers. Apparently, we are able I should say we are enabled to walk as Jesus walked, even in the midst of injustice. You know, I'd invite you sometimes to step into my study, my office up the hall here. 
I would be glad to show you something special to me. It's a very uh, way out of date calendar still hanging by my desk there. I keep it there because on the month of January, on this particular calendar, there is a picture of my two children when they were very small. And the picture, since it was January, is a picture of these two tots that were my precious offspring standing in the midst of a significant New Jersey snowfall. The picture, of course, shows them bundled up till they could barely move. You have to know their mother. But they were all smiles. And I don't know what memories my children will take with them into adulthood, but as a dad, I have a few memories that are precious to me, and this is one of them. Part of the fun was for dad to walk through the big backyard in his giant size tin boots, punching holes in the two feet of snow, just so they could jump from footprint to footprint that had been laid out before them. What joy do you think I found in their frolic? But let me say, what joy do you think fills the heavenly Father's heart when the offspring of His only begotten Son, His children by new birth, are on a journey with some great effort, jumping from footprint to footprint to walk where Jesus walked? It's no frolic. It is certainly no walk in the park. If I were to keep with a biblical analogy, it's you better step in the footsteps of Jesus because he's taking us through a minefield in a world that has fallen. Jesus, we know now he endured the cross to think that we would be the reward of his sacrifice. What, what wondrous, scandalous grace, what unspeakable riches of love. Peter sets the cross before us in the context of teaching us how to deal with unjust attacks. And he says in verse 24, He, Christ Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross. Not just so we'd have a ticket to heaven. Do you see what it says? So that we might die to sin. That we might be enabled to live to righteousness. For by those wounds we were healed, we are enabled to go in the footsteps of Jesus. You know what I think was a greater burden to bear for Jesus than that gross crown of thorns, or the cruel treatment of the cross? I'll tell you what I think was the greater burden. The greater burden for Jesus on the cross was to bear the great load of sins which I have done that kept him there for me. And yet I read by those wounds, I'm healed. 
That is, all that sin would wreak of havoc upon my soul, and it has. All that would have made me a lifelong enemy of Christ and of the Gospel was dealt with and paid for. And new life now springs forth. And I and you who are the redeemed are enabled to walk, to take rather big steps we could have never taken before. New life springs forth. And we are enabled to walk in His steps. I was having conversation this week with someone who was reminding me that a very, very popular pastor in this community after some years is leading the community to take another charge. And and this person was telling me about how the church is going to come together and no doubt shed some tears. They they did not want this pastor to leave. Uh, would, would that every pastor would have such a blessing that no one would want him to leave. But this pastor's leaving. And this individual said to me, you know, whoever takes his place has some very big shoes to fill. Beloved, they have no idea. Not really. The shoes that we are meant to fill, not another believers, not another pastors, not another great person for this or that reason. The shoes of Jesus are very big shoes to try to fill, and we will not be able to. Not in perfection, but like my children walking in the footsteps, my big footsteps in the snow, we can make an effort and we can get to our destination. We'll never fill his shoes, that's for sure. Even now, you look at the footprints prone to wander. But the truth of verse 25, it's the last verse for our text today, describes not just a one-time experience, but what's hidden in this text is that this is basically the life story of every redeemed child of God. It is the perennial experience of every true child of God. Verse 25, for you are, and the sense is, and still are, (laughs) always, continually, it says, straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls again and again and again and again. And even if all were marching in line and 99 were accounted for. If one such sheep should wander from the fold. He secures the 99 and goes out into the terrors and dangers of the night to bring the one who has wandered away. This is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Oh, we're trying to walk in his steps, but we're always straying. But he comes and he brings us back and he makes more footprints for us to follow. As shepherd, he patiently, tenderly leads. He calls us by name and we follow because... We've been given the grace to know His voice. As sheep, we wander. But even then, He's the very guardian of our soul. We walk in His steps. His example is perfect. How could it be otherwise? Our best efforts to follow in His steps, I tell you, will be met with His shepherding skill. We need not fear. He guards even as He leads to green pastures and still waters. 
of his peace. He is shepherd and guardian. How secure are your efforts then of walking in his steps? Peter would say, if you bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, if you do what is right and you suffer for it, Christ is your example. We walk in his steps. We keep entrusting ourselves to the Father who judges righteously. Be careful should you ever say to someone, because you falter a bit and you revile again, even with a tone of voice that says, when you've been treated unjustly, God's going to get you for this. Now, guess what? That's true. But that's God's business, not yours or mine. And if we knew anything about the righteous, holy wrath and judgment of God, we'd fall on our knees and cry out for mercy, not only for ourselves, but even for our enemies. So great is his judgment to come. We follow in his footprints. And beloved, I end with this. Where else would the path lead? We follow in his footprints and we find they lead us all the way home. 